Welcome back to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you great songs by unknown artists and unknown songs by great artists. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And we have a very spectacular and special episode today because we have a theme. And I think this, to my knowledge, is our first ever themed episode. Yeah, I think and, so too. Uh, our ratings are already dropping off, so we're going to have to... <laughs> <laughs> We've intertwined... We sort of intertwine themes, uh, sometimes by accident, sometimes slightly on purpose, with turntable talks, but this is total theme day show. Okay. And the theme of today is Georgia. We uh, met up in Atlanta to hang out and record a few episodes, so we decided we were going to do a total Georgia episode. So the trivia is going to be about Georgia, the turntable talk is going to be about Georgia, the songs are going to be about Georgia or by somehow, Georgia yeah. artist. Somehow Georgia related. Something, yeah. something related. We just love that little republic outside of Russia so much. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till our Chechen episode. <laughs> That's a little Georgia joke for you uh, people. Anyways, as always, we like to start the episode off with some I say I did, I did Back in the USSR as my song. <laughs> I do have a Chuck Berry version of that, by the way, which may come up All right. in the future. But uh, not Georgia related. Don't yet. <laughs> All right, let's, um, let's start with some trivia. Perfect. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. All right, Joe, are you ready for our special supersized Georgia audio trivia? No, but um, I'm going to do it. Now, just so everybody knows, I'm not from Georgia. I don't know a whole lot about Georgia or musicians other than what I researched for this. And that is how I qualify screwing this up. Hedging your bets, huh? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's I cool. always say I don't like qualifications, and then they just do it all the time. Yeah. Anyway. Well, okay. you know, that's, uh, I, think, I think you'll be okay. 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 All right. There's eight audio tracks, which is three more than we usually do. I had to get them all in. So here we go, people. Track number one. Going home. I said I'm going home. Track number two. We're upon you for a missile. For you on my thrill. Track number three. Seven. Track 
track eight. It's empty. Lord, it sure ain't worth a damn. All right, uh, that was a pretty tough audio quiz. I told Joe to use the theme. The theme may the theme is pretty obvious, I think, once you get to the end. If you could pick up three or four of the songs, I think you can get the theme. And then use the theme. We'll play the tracks again, and we'll come back. Joe, you got some Georgia trivia for me? I do. My quiz is I'm going to list an artist, either a band or a singer, and you need to tell me if they're from Georgia. Okay. Okay? Yep. Um, so I'm just going to go through, I, I've got quite a few of them here. I've got a lot of them. Okay. Um, so we're going to go through and I'll just, I'll just name a few and you tell me, uh, yes or no. And I'm going to give you the answer immediately. So those of you playing at home are going to have to go quickly. All right. All right. I'll start off with it with an easy one. Black Crows. Yes. Yes, they are. Okay. James Brown. Yes. Okay. Matthew Sweet. No. Yes, he is. Bobby Gentry. No. No, she's. Yep, that is correct. R.L. Burnside. Ooh. I'm going to say no. I think he's from Tennessee. Mississippi. No. Um, Sharon Jones. She was born in. I'm going to say yes. I think she was born in the same town as James Brown. Oh, okay. Yeah, she was definitely from Georgia. I don't know. I didn't get my town. What's the name of that town? Anyway, still coming to me. Yes, Okay, yep, yep. Richard Hell. No. No, he's not, but he's uh, Southern. Mastodon. Yes, I think they're from Atlanta. They are. Conti Hall. No, he's from Kentucky. Okay. Leo Kotke. <laughs> Georgia, USA? <laughs> um, no? Yes, he is. Oh, man. Uh, the band Phosphorescent, who we were playing earlier. I think they're from Alabama. Nope, Georgia. Well, they have that song about Alabama. Why would you do that? They have a song about L.A., too. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. <laughs> Britney Spears. No. No, she's not. Florida or something? I don't know. I think it's Louisiana. Oh, maybe that's something like that. that. Um, of Montreal. I feel like this is a trick. It, 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 I don't know. Sometimes they're tricks. Sometimes I think they might be from Athens. Yes. Yes, they are. Okay. David Paho. Yeah. No. Kentucky. No. Louisville. Well, um, that makes sense. <laughs> Wesley Willis. I want to say he's from Chicago. No. No, he is not. Um, got a few more here. Sorry that this is taking too long. No, this I is love kind it. Of fun. No, this is great. Um, Blind Melon. Yes. No. No, they're from Mississippi. Oh. Sorry. I don't know anything about that. Collective Soul. There well, you go. You You're welcome. All these horrible <laughs> bands. Yes. Yes. Yes, they're yes, from they are. Yeah. The name of the collective store is from Georgia. Pee Wee King. No, he's from Texas. <laughs> Wisconsin. Shout out to the Packers. <laughs> uh, let's do Sean Marshall. Yeah, she's from Atlanta. She is. Sun Ra. I want him to be. <laughs> from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure, let's claim him. He's not. Uh, no. Dang. Jim Croce. No. No, he is not. Ben Folds. I hope not. I think he is, though. He is not. No, Where is he from? No. Uh, I think it's Pennsylvania. I didn't write that one down. Liberace. No, he's from Wisconsin. He is from Wisconsin. Marty Stewart. Yes. No. 
Jimmy Buffett. Can't be. No. Mississippi, which I was surprised by. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the way, we don't like him. Um, let's do Little Richard. Yes. Yes, he for is. Sure. Now, this one's going to be tricky. I don't know if a lot of people at home will know this person. I, I hope they do. Danny Witten, do you remember him? From Crazy Horse. He's the one that Neil Young wrote Needle in the Damage Stone. Right. Yeah. He wrote a roadie slash guitarist. He was a guitarist. He was not. I don't think he was a roadie, but he was. Um, he was a guitarist. Really great guitarist, and that is specifically who. Um, well, not maybe not specifically. Is that the whole uh, needle in the damage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there were a few people. Yeah, several people. Heroin. Yeah, yeah. He sounds like he'd be from Georgia. He is from Georgia. The OJs. That's gonna be. A hard one, because I don't know how familiar I are with some of these. Here. All of them? I think only like three. Just as a band. I don't think so. No, they are not. I think it might be Michigan, if I remember right. Let's do Leftover Salmon. Yeah. No. Colorado. No, oh, I thought they were one of those jam band ones. Yeah, there, they, there they are. There is a jam band from Georgia. Some strength cheese incident or something? Nope, that's Colorado also. One of the other ones I wrote down. Crisscross. I'm going to say yes. They are. Yeah. Did they, I, their influence you can still see around the streets. People right, wearing clothes backwards. backwards. Yeah. yeah. Jerry Reed. I think he is. He is. You are right. God, he um, he's great. He yeah, he's amazing. Sam Cooke. I think he is. He is not. <sighs> you did really well on that. I think about over eighty percent. So, yeah, that's that's tough. That's, yeah, absolutely. You start putting these like, <coughs> crappy ninety bands. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I had to find. <coughs> I had to get in your head. Yeah, it worked. All right, that's, that's, that's a fun quiz. Good. We have Good. to do a different state theme. Yeah, we should do different states all the time. Yeah. I guess that brings up turntable talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. And for our turntable talk today, it is my turn, and I um, was excited about this one. This is something that I kind of hold near and dear to my heart, just because it's two things that I really love, and they kind of intertwine, and they both are Georgia Giants, and that is the band R.E.M. and the artist Howard Finster. You probably know R.E.M., and you, you may know Howard Finster. I don't know how how popular he is now, but um, this is kind of the story of how these uh, this kind of strange, mutually beneficial re- relationship developed between Howard Finster's probably the world's most famous, visionary, self-taught, naive, outsider, folk artist, whatever you want to call it, and the world's, at least at one time, the world's most famous independent band. And so um, they have kind of a strange history together. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of both uh, R.E.M. and Howard Finster. I think what's great about this and and distinctively Georgia is they kind of both developed in some sort of kind of isolation. One thing about Georgia is you can kind of be weird here because it's just a place where that's allowed because you're kind of isolating, you can kind of develop. And I think being outside that norm and the freedom that you can get from that is really good for developing your own style and your own personality, and both both these uh, entities did that. And finding beauty in what surrounds you, and it's it's uh, it's not always what what's considered just kind of normal, but that's okay. And just spreading that message. So let's talk a little bit about REM. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. Of course, they're known for being fiercely independent and groundbreaking, and one of the first, maybe not the first band, but one of the one of the bands where seemed all four members brought something to the table 
and they kind of were very diplomatic and, and equal about it. They all took songwriting credits, and they all kind of worked together, and they did it for a, for a long, long time. And it was a map that would lead the way for so many other indie bands. Uh, I can't even name. They're basically indie. credited with creating College Radio. Yeah. Like yeah. what you know is College Radio. Any independent indie band from, or college rock band from the late 80s on owes them a debt, and most of them are pretty vocal about that. It's, it's hard not to kind of love R.E.M. In January 1980, uh, Michael Stipe, met Peter Buck at Wux Tree Records, which is an Athens record store, uh, Athens where the UGA is, and Buck worked there, and they had very similar tastes. They both loved Velvet Underground and Patti Smith and Punk and Proto-Punk by television. They just kind of hit it off buying records, and that's how a lot of friendships seemed to start. That's how Husker Du started. That's how Joe and me started. So three giants, Highway Hot right. Podcast, Husker Du and R.E.M. <laughs> all started at record stores. Uh, so... <laughs> Buck met uh, Mike Mills and Bill Berry, who, who had been playing together in bands since high school. Uh, Mike Mills was the only who was only member of R.E.M. who was more classically trained. But they moved in together, and they decided to collaborate on some songs. There wasn't a big plan behind it. In April, they played a show at a converted Episcopal church. It was a friend's birthday party. And they played ten original songs from the first show, which is pretty cool. Uh, they didn't never stopped from there. Was that 80 or 81? 80. Okay, thanks. Of course, they have... They kind of created their own distinctive style. Stipe's got those obscure, muddled lyrics, and Buck has the ringing, pegated guitar that kind of rings out. Nils has the very melodic bass lines and the beautiful backing vocals, and um, Bill Berry's just the solid drummer. And so in 81, they released their first single on Hip Tone uh, Records, which I think that was the first, their first release, Radio Free Europe. The single, they were very popular in Athens and getting more and more popular. Then eventually they released Chronic Town on IRS Records, and that was 82, and that was their first EP. Of course, that would become very successful, and then they would eventually release their first full-length Murmur, and by the time they were in 87, I mean, they just toured and released music pretty pretty quickly, and it was all good, and they had college radio playing their stuff, and... By 87, they had a mainstream hit with The One I Love, and then they signed to Warner Brothers Records and became the R.E.M. we know, who played in arenas and was more political and stuff like that. But, you know, it all started in Athens. Stipe definitely kind of led the band's aesthetic, but like I said, they are very diplomatic, and they, everything I read said that they all worked together and they all had this cons- kind of consensus group. So, step back, let's talk about Howard Pinster. Like I said, he's probably one of the most well-known outside artists. He he is an interesting guy. He was a backwoods Baptist preacher who had these paintings and sculptures that were inspired by the gospel and visions from dead people and, and aliens and stuff like that. And what he was really important is kind of introducing people, especially in America, to the concept of outsider arts. He's he's one of the first people to kind of show people what that is. He was born in Alabama, actually. He lived on a farm, and he said he had his first vision at the age of three when his recently deceased sister, Abby Rose, walked down out of the sky wearing a white gown and told him that he was going to be a man of visions. When your dead sister comes and talks to you, you better you better listen. So he, uh, he was uh, born again at a Baptist revival at the age of 13 and began preaching at 16. He would give sermons and write for local newspapers and eventually became a full-time uh, pastor. In about 61, he moved to Penville, Georgia, which is near a city called Somerville, 
bought four acres of land, which he wanted to build something called a plant farm museum to show all the wonder thing, wonderful things of God's creations. And the property had a bicycle repair shop where he made some income from. But he would just start making things. He would make concrete walls with different toys. He would make used junk and broken dolls and tall uh, tools and clocks, and he would bed them, bed them in concrete walls. He built a 30-foot-tall tower of bicycle parts called the Bicycle bicycle Tower, and he built a church there called the World's Folk Art Church. He built a house that called the Bible House. He built a house that's full of tiny pieces of mirror called the Mirror House. I think I saw some bearded kid in Chicago driving, riding around on that bike. <laughs> <laughs> He built a hubcap tower and just just all sorts of stuff. And wherever he would go, he would put he would paint Bible verses everywhere in in this place. He would paint Bible verses. It ended up being there's forty six thousand different pieces there. There's sculptures, waterways, signs, junk. It was it was garages full of stuff and gardens. And when he painted or or when he did his work, he'd have a crazy range of subjects. He It included pop pop culture icons like Elvis Presley, Hank Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Coke bottles. But he'd also do historical figures like George Washington, all the way up, Henry Ford, all the way up to like Ronald Reagan. And lots of religious images, John the Baptist and demons and Jesus and aliens. And he'd also do UFOs and things about war and politics. And they were all very colorful and detailed. And almost all of them, he would write something, he would paint something finsterisms, mostly Bible verses or just things he would say. He said God asked him to do 5,000 paintings. He numbered every painting. God asked him to do 5,000 paintings to spread the gospel, and he finished 5,000 in Christmas, uh, by Christmas 1985, but he continued until he died. And like I said, there's many, many thousands of uh, work. Uh, towards the end, some of it was more uninspired souvenir type stuff to sell, but a lot of it was great. They said he didn't sleep, or if he did, it was just a few hours a day, and he spent every night kind of in a trance, drinking coke and painting or working on his sculptures. It was a weird, <laughs> he had a weird blend of kind of like religious icons and faith, and then science fiction. His visions were both from aliens and angels. It's just very strange. So he was originally shunned by art critics, but in '75 he started to get more and more popular. He uh, uh, got an interview or a piece in Esquire magazine that uh, they were the first one to dub his land Paradise Garden, which is no, what it's known as now. He eventually got a exhibit in '76, and he would paint for the Library of Congress. He was a banjo player, and he would sing, and it was kind of strange. And by '80 he was in Life magazine, and Eighty-two, he received the National Endowment of the Arts for uh, sculpture, and he even appeared on the Johnny Carson show. And he so weird, Johnny Carson kind of had this hard for Johnny Carson to keep up. Is um, there um is there a YouTube clip oh, of that? Is totally oh, good, good, good. He uh, <laughs> he played banjo, and it's, it's just it's you got you got to watch it for being such an outsider artist and doing his own thing. He loved kind of corresponding with other people. He other artists, Keith Haring and Allen Ginsberg would come, but he really. In that late 70s, early 80s, he really exploded and more of a household name, especially for being an outsider artist. Outsider artist. That brings us to back to REM. So as an art student at UGA, Michael Stack had heard about this place, Paradise Garden. So he, and sometimes he brings a band, they would go down there all the time and just hang out. And eventually they kind of befriended Howard Finster. How far was Somerville from Athens? I would guess, yes, I guess. probably two hours. Okay. It's not, they're both North Georgia, but Athens is east, and Somerville is almost west. It's okay. very west towards towards, uh, towards Alabama. 
So they'd travel and hang out with Howard Finster, and they would walk around the garden, grottos and the gardens and listen to Finster ramble on about God and space and all this stuff. So in 83, they decided they were going to film their debut singles video, Radio Free Europe, in Finster's uh, Paradise Garden. It was directed by Arthur Peterson. And the video is just the group walking around with these sculptures. They're so crazy and big and, and unique, and they're giant concrete heads and pieces of junk. And it's basically them just walking around, hanging out, as music videos were back. Uh, IRS, the record company, didn't know what to do with the video when they first saw it. So they eventually <laughs> put some footage of the band in there. But they kept a lot of them kind of walking around the gardens. And the the end of it, it was um, the band going up to Finster, and he's got like a toy, like a tumbling toy clown thing. He just shows the the, clown, the toy kind of tumbling down a piece of wood. But R.E.M. was never a giant fan of videos. At least that's what I said, especially Peter Buck. But they said that they were kind of upset that the final cost of the video was about half of what it cost to make the whole album. It's like $30,000. Very expensive video, especially for an independent band. Later, uh, they had Finster to help them paint the cover for their second album, Reckoning. And so, basically, Michael Stipe painted a two-headed snake, and then he gave it to Finster to finish up. And you can see Finster writing. If you look at the album cover, you can kind of see the writing and some of the kind of Finster style. Apparently, neither were very happy with it just didn't translate really well, but they kept it anyways, and that that was something that kind of brought Finster even more recognition, the video for Radio Free Europe and this record cover, and people were starting to kind of come, hear about this Paradise Garden because they loved R.E.M., and, and another thing I'm about to talk about, and they would come down and flock, and they would get in buses, and so he would get more popular, and it was just kind of like this perpetuating thing. Other album cover that Finster is very well known for is the Little, uh, Little Creatures album, album cover. He did that in 85, and he got hooked up with David Burns through a mutual friend who was a dealer or something like that. He would paint that cover, which is a guy holding the world, and he'd never seen the talking heads, but apparently they sent him a picture of them, so he, he painted them, each of the talking heads <laughs> in it. And he, um, it's a great cover, one album cover of the year by Rolling Stones, uh, very colorful, this guy holding the world with lots of things around it. He said they put, um, put 26 religious verses on the cover and so he says that record sold two million copies so i got 26 or something uh, or sold it sold a million copies so i got 26 million bible verses out to people and that's that was his mindset he was all about spreading the gospel through his art and so that was kind of why he was willing to work with these popular artists because he wanted to spread that message and he saw the how rock and roll was a legitimate way of spreading that message great outlet yeah um, they were in Athens Inside Out documentary together, which appeared on MTV's 120 Minutes. And in that, Peter Buck shows a cutout of he did of Elvis as a child in the bathroom. It's kind of funny. And Finster talks about what it's being an artist. And eventually, on Fables of Reconstruction, they wrote the song Maps and Legends about Howard Finster. And so, Fables of Reconstruction is kind of an album about Southern Gothic characters and the themes of alienation. So, it worked perfect. And they actually, REM recorded the album in. London, and apparently they're miserable. It was cold, the food was bad. It was kind of funny that they were in London recording about the South again. And so the lyrics were perfect regarding Howard Finster. They said the lyrics are called the fool in the company, on his own where he'd rather be, where he ought to be, he sees, what you can't see, can't you see that? Down the road, down the way the roads divided, paint me the places you've seen, 
those who know what I don't know refer to yellow, red, and green. Maybe he's caught in the legend. Maybe he's caught in the mood. I think Stipe definitely had this appreciation and probably this, because Henster was such a, like, a mystic loner, I think Michael Stipe really looked up to him. I mean, you know, Michael Stipe seems like a pretty humble guy or at least a rounded guy to some extent, but Howard Fenster's kind of the real deal. I think you can't fake what Howard Fenster did. Now, he got so big that it maybe got out of his hands a little bit, uh, and I think Michael Stipe probably shares a little bit of that appreciation. He got so big his artistic work, even though they were both fiercely independent and wanted to hold control of their work. Once you get that big, it starts belonging to other people, whether it's your fans or record companies or whatnot. R.E.M. would work with other folk artists and artists. His art teacher, uh, Jim Herbert, would eventually direct most of his videos, and that was one of Michael Stipe's mentors, and he went to school at CU, Go Buffs, and, and studied under Clifford Still and experimental filmmaker Stan Brackage. Jim Herbert guy was one of the guys who actually introduced him to the concept of this outsider art and Howard Finster. And eventually, they would record another video in, I want to say, 84. They recorded a video at this other folk artist named Reuben Aaron Miller's farm, which is above Athens, called Rabbit Town. And he was another... Was that Fall on Me? It was was called uh, Left of Reckoning. The one that... No, it wasn't Fall on Me. It was before Fall on Me. Pretty Persuasion, which is a song they didn't really like. (laughs) It was like a 20-minute video, but they cut it out for MTV or whatever. Pretty Persuasion was what they cut out. Uh, R.A. Miller was kind of a cool guy, too. He he did a lot of metal cutouts in what are called whirly gigs, which are like metal spinning things uh, that you see on the side of the road. And he's kind of famous for this character called Low Oscar, which is kind of like a 2D cutout of a guy walking with a horn. And he said he had a, a relative named Oscar who blow his horn every time he walked by his house and that was his inspiration. But he would also do animals and devils and dinosaurs and Elvises. Pretty pretty popular for both artists, apparently. Uncle Sam's. His farm was kind of a spectacle, too, so R.E.M. went up there, and, and he got a little bump in fame, too, after R.E.M. did that. So this wasn't the only... Finster wasn't the only kind of folk artist they kind of helped by including them. Now, it wasn't nearly as much. I think the record covers probably did more for Finster than the actual videos. It was just kind of that... That kind of showing how cool it is, and R.E.M. is such a cool band, and they're hanging out with these middle-of-nowhere places, artists who have no intellectual credit with the art community, and I think that was a great thing for both of them. Uh, I also was kind of digging, there's a guy named St. Ohm, who has a amazing folk art place in South Georgia, Buena Vista, to see, I wonder if R.E.M. ever worked with him, and sure enough, in 85, I saw Michael Stipe meeting him and taking pictures of his place. His place is called Paxaquan. His name uh, was Edward Martin, and he ran away from home, went to New York, and would read fortune telling cards. He came back home eventually and created this land called Paxaquan, which was kind of like pre-Columbian, very like South American, these giant totems and pagodas, very colorful. And Michael Stipe hung out with him too. I got stories about him because some of my family have actually met him and one time, my mother-in-law knew some soldiers who went to Passaquan to get their fortunes read. That's what he did. People would go there and give their fortunes read. And she met a soldier who said, we went, there was about five of us, and we all got our fortunes read. He read everyone's fortune. He got to the last guy, and he started doing this. This man has no future. On the car ride home, sure enough, they got in a car accident, and the guy that had no future died. One of those type of guys. 
Is there a citation for that? I'd like to. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> Good story. Sort of like a few episodes ago when the when Kenny Rogers took somebody home to do Yes. <laughs> Probably a better story than true. Either way, Passaquan is a is a fantastic place, and, and clearly Michael Stipe would travel to these weird places and befriend, and he actually hung out with uh, Saint Ohm too. So, and Michael Stipe became a pretty good artist, photographer in his own right. It's mostly what he, I mean, that's almost all that he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently he also, and this is something that I would never know, but he did a lot of lighting for the shows, and he was really good at lighting the band, which apparently is a hard thing, I mean, to do it well. However, he wanted the band lit, and he was very hands-on about that, which I think is kind of yeah, weird. Yeah, I like cool. that. He seemed like a really, he seems like a very interesting Yeah, player. so... um like I said, these are two just very uniquely Georgia creatures, so to speak, and uh, they're two areas that totally interest me, both folk art and seeing how a band can kind of make it in this kind of nasty business and everything we read and research. Bands constantly get screwed over. They don't make a lot of money, so R.E.M. managed to hang on to their dignity and, and do what they wanted to do, and they showed the beauty in these dark, lonely places and spread their message, whether it was rock and roll or whether it was the gospel, and I thought it was cool that they kind of did it together. He and Michael Stipe did the cover art for Reckoning. One thing about Reckoning, if anybody out there has the vinyl of this, pull it out and look at it. It's going to look like black vinyl, not all of them. It's going to look like regular black vinyl, but there are some copies that if you hold it to the light, you'll see that it's actually Really? It's almost transparent uh, so translucent, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. Know I don't have one like that. But I, I guess I need to check mine. Yeah, you've got to go go check. But I wouldn't. I mean, I've listened to it. I don't know if I'd ever hold it up. And I'm pretty sure I have a pretty early IRS copy. Yep, it might be. You know, in the end, I think if there was two two uh, two people I'd want to represent Georgia, it would be Michael Snape and REM and Howard Fisker. Awesome. Thank you. That was that was great. I, again, I didn't know much about it. I know a lot about REM, but I didn't know much about Fisker. Okay, uh, we're going to move on to songs. I am going to go first, and my first song is by a band called the Georgia Peaches. And the song is called Wait. This was a. This is from a live album that I have recorded in 1981, and I'll get into a little bit more on that um, and the band after we play it. So here we go. Fashions by Hopper. You got your problems, darling. I got mine too. You know that. Baby, it's time for you to come through because I. I'm at the end of my road. Don't let me know you. 
So that was the Georgia Peaches with uh, with a song called Wait from an album called Ripe, which is a live recording from 1981, and if you actually sat through listening to that, it is R.E.M. from 1981, which is funny. I didn't know, or at least I didn't remember Ryan was going to do an R.E.M. thing. So, wait, it's about Georgia, I guess. It, it, <laughs> very likely. They're, they're pretty they're pretty big. Yeah. Anyway, it's clearly a bootleg, private, not private press, but on a, on a bootleg label or whatever. Uh-huh. But they knew about it. They were aware of it. And so they renamed themselves. They did this again later on throughout their career with another bootleg that I that I know of and I have. But anyway, this one they put out under the name Georgia Peaches. And they put out the date that it was recorded incorrectly so that it wouldn't be tied to an actual date that they recorded. Really? Yeah. So it would be harder to figure out that it was R.E.M. Though the cover of the album is... Michael Stipe. <laughs> so, but the, the bootleg was probably travel, was probably going through cassettes, so it was harder to do. But anyway, they do, on that double album, they, for that show, they did 27 tracks. So they did early versions of Rockville. They did uh, maybe 12 to 15 songs that ended up on albums later, and they did about 10 originals that never ended up anywhere, and they did a bunch of covers, like Rayvon was one of them. Uh, really fun. Really, really fun album. And I mentioned that they, they used a fake name later on in the late 80s, early night, late 80s. Yeah, because I got this in the late 80s. They were in England doing a show, and they had Billy Bragg played a few songs on this. He was there, and they recorded under the name Bingo Handjob, <laughs> which was fun, too. And they did some, they did a song called Fretless, which ended up on a, a soundtrack, but they, the version on that is one of the best I've ever heard. All right. My, my first song is not by an artist from Georgia, but it is about Georgia. And this is an artist that Joe and I both love, and maybe more so in the past. And, and probably if you are into his music, you will know this song. Unless you've gotten to him recently, you may not know this song. So I'm going to go ahead and play it. The song is Going to Georgia by the Mountain Goats.
was going to Georgia by the Mountain Goats, which is up there on one of my all-time favorite songs. I, I, I absolutely love that song. That came out on his first full-length record, Zopilote Machine, I guess is how you pronounce it. It came out in 94 on CD and a few years later on Three Beads of Sweat's label on vinyl. This was the 18th track out of 19 tracks on that debut album. It is very stylistically in line with what he was doing back then. He would just hit record on his boombox recorder, and he would play an acoustic guitar as fast as he could and sing amazing songs. And he would do that 20 times per album, and several albums or singles or whatever per year. Out of the lo-fi era, he, he has changed much since then and, and records with a full band and, and records very kind of lush production now. There's some good songs. I think Joe and I both prefer the earlier stuff, but uh, out of the, his lo-fi era, I think it's one, probably one of his more popular songs. Probably one that definitely he, he, you know, it gets requested and stuff like that. John Darnett, who is the, the singer-songwriter of The Mountain Goats, has pretty much disavowed it and retired it from live sets. He will not play it. He um, he's explained that the he thinks it romanticizes gun violence and was kind of written in the voice of a misogynistic man. He said, uh, I've had a good time playing it for many years, but then I made the mistake of listening to it. Joe and I were talking about this song last night. I don't think either of I got that interpretation. And it's his song, so he can do whatever he wants with it, and, and you should listen to him. I guess I've always thought it was a, kind of like an outlaw coming home. Mm-hmm. and uh, Or, you know, in Georgia, a lot of people have guns. It's not. Uh, but I, I guess it's neither really here nor there. We love the song, and yep. it's, it's committed to to, uh, to vinyl, but it's, you know, an artist has a right to say, that's not what I want to play anymore. Absolutely. And, and I've and I got to respect that he's, he seems like a real reasonable guy, and he's got his logic, and that's fine. Before there was the best ever death metal band out of Denton, this was his main encore every show. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, okay. He says a lot that the narrator has this narcissism that doesn't allow for the autonomy of other people, people and... As a young writer, he kind of found the romance in that level of self-absorption, which is a lot of analysis for a song that doesn't have many lyrics. And it's two minutes long. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's his song, and he's way smarter than me, so he can do whatever he wants and talk whatever he wants. I personally love the song. I don't know if it still exists, but at one point, our friend Yetsko, Joe and I, recorded a, a cover version of this all about meats. Uh, do you remember that? I do. I was going to bring it up myself. I don't know <laughs> if we have a recording still exists. But. I hope not. But uh, instead of two big hands and a heart pumping blood, it was I've got two big hams and a heart pumping bacon. Okay. Okay. And uh, however we clever, I think we tried to send it to him. I'm not sure. I think we, we also didn't we far. record it and then play it back at half speed. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was recorded and played back half speed. I think you were singing. That was your your vocal debut for our. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Band. And as you can tell by my voice, I have a I have a face for podcasts and a voice for newsprint. It was terrifying. That's all pretty scary. Yeah. That cover version. It but was. That's what it was meant to be, though. It was meant to be even. It was meant to be really creepy. We, and it we was. creeped it out. Plant. We we kind of read the, read the stars and we creeped it out for you, Mr. Darnell. So. so and I think I, what I've heard is, and this is something I found out within the last five ten years, that he pronounces his last name Darnell. Is he French? I don't know. And that's our first song. Second song. Second song. All right, so that was my first song, and now I'm going to go to a similar song, at least in the title, but it is by a true Georgian. 
and that is Abner J. And the song is called I Am Georgia Bound. I'm Georgia Bound. Oh, I'm Georgia Bound. You can call me a clown, but I'm Georgia Bound. And the first thing out of here in the morning smoking Cause I ain't hitting on nothing here in Detroit City Don't know what I come here for in the first place Listening to my friend Well, I'm gonna stop in Atlanta Pick up my sweetheart Before we get to Savannah I'm gonna talk to the preacher I'm gonna get me one of them Georgia Pizza You can try to tie me down But I am Georgia bound You can stick around But I am Georgia Bound by Abner J. And I have that song on a record called The True Story of Abner J. That came out in 2009 on Mississippi Records. And they're a label that puts out rare old records from Portland. Really great stuff. Abner J. is is another one of uh, my uh, favorite Georgia legends. And he, he kind of fits in with that, that folk artist, too, at least as an outsider. He was a multi-instrumentalist. He was a one-man band from Fitzgerald, Georgia, and he would perform these weird, kind of bluesy folk stuff. He is really worth his own turntable talk, and I think at some point I will do that. I, um, but I wanted to make sure that I recognized him on the Georgia episode. But he is such an interesting guy and had such a, a weird, long history. But he's also very influential as far as performance. He basically, when he performed, he had a harmonica, a drum kit, an electric six-string banjo, he claimed was made in 1748. I don't know how an electric banjo was claimed in 1748. <laughs> and then he played uh, bones, which are chicken and cow bones that had been bleached in the sun, and he used it as percussion. And he did all of that while he played by himself. His repertoire had field songs, hymns, minstrel tunes. 
he um, had a knowledge of many, many songs, and he used them. He once described himself as the last working black, southern black minstrel. He would record, and on his recording, he would sometimes tell a story before he started the song and then go into the song, kind of like a, a Lee Hazelwood did that, some of that. I'm sure it's, a lot of blues artists did that. He'd been playing uh, minstrel medicine review shows since the age of five. He got around over the years. He worked with uh, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, and he ran nightclubs, and he knew Little Richard and Chuck Berry and James Brown and Elvis, and, and he played alongside Muddy, Muddy Water. So he, he had pedigree. He just never really got famous. He just just kind of was his own man, and he wasn't very modest about it. He, he said he thought he was great. He <laughs> Before he died, he, he, he self-released all his records on a label called Brandy Records, which was named after his daughter. But he would tell people, hurry up and get the record. This is going to be worth a lot of money when I die. And he is absolutely right. You can find an original Abner J record. It's worth a lot of money. He's from Fitzgerald, which is about an hour north of where I'm from in South Georgia. Every once in a while, I'll just drive up there and, and go through different uh, junk shops and stuff, just just in the hopes I can find an Abner J record. I, I have not found one. I have to get the reissues. So, uh, I Am Georgia Bound is a reworking of a blues standard song, but I think it kind of perfectly sums up Abner J as both kind of humor and pain and kind of traditional, but it's got his originality and it's very American, but it's very kind of outside normal traditional standards and captures both that longing to leave and that nostalgia for home. He's a complicated man, but man, I love that song. How many of his albums do you have? Three. Okay. I've got anything Mississippi Records has put out besides maybe one single. is like a split single I have, I've got. Mississippi Records tends not to keep things in print very long. Right. So I will grab it if I see it. They also have a, um, have you seen their mail or their subscription? Yeah, yeah. It's is really weird. You, what you have to do with the subscription is you mail them either cash or check. They don't take credit cards. Right. You mail them whatever amount you want. I think the minimum might be 30 bucks. As you run out of money, they'll send you records until you run out of money, and then you can replenish, yeah. and they'll just keep sending them. And they kind of don't get a lot of choice, but most of their stuff is so cool that it's it wouldn't really, really matter. great stuff. I thought about thought about getting that as a Christmas gift for my wife because she tends to like a lot of their stuff. And I do, too. I've got, a lot. I've got a lot of their records. and The first time I ordered from it, I was a little worried I was never going to get it. it. was The focus was not on this lush internet shopping experience. It's Probably some dude with a record shop who puts out these great Yeah, and he records. hates the internet. Yeah. He, he, and it's kind of complicated, but, but the records are so good it's worth it. And I've never seen them in stores. Like it seems Reckless like. Records in Chicago carries them. Okay, cool. They get the new releases. That's where, I, that's where I've, got all, I've gotten all of mine. Yeah. This one is, if you were going to get one, and it may be back in print. It kind of comes in now. It's called The True Story of Amber J, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, uh, my second song, our last song, is a song by a guy named uh, Johnny Jenkins, and the song is a cover of Dr. John's I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Let's go ahead and play that.
Okay, that was Johnny Jenkins with Walk on Gilded Splinters, which was originally a Dr. John song. It is off his album, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this right, Tom Tom Makoop, 1970 on Capricorn Records. <laughs> this was the album itself was originally supposed to be a Dwayne Almond album. Dwayne Almond plays guitar on it, but then he went off. I think not sure what happened. He went off to do. He departed from the Almond Brothers band at that point. Uh, anyway, he left the session after everything was recorded, and Johnny Jenkins went in and did the vocals. And Johnny Jenkins was the guitarist on the album, the lead guitarist. He was up known as a blues guitarist before that. This one has more of a funk, country, soul, kind of does everything. For when he started, Johnny Jenkins was in a band called the Pine Toppers, and he was just a guitarist, so he hired a very young guy to be their singer, and it was Otis Redding. Otis Redding actually ended up becoming Johnny Jenkins' personal driver because Jenkins did not have a driver's license for a little while. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. So he helped launch that career. There was even an album that Johnny Jenkins was doing at Stax, and at the very end of it, he had 40 minutes of studio time left. So Otis Redding sang a song on there, recorded it, and it was These Arms of Mine. This sort of ended up really kind of crushing Johnny Jenkins' career because his his manager heard Otis Redding and just kind of focused on him for Shut 20 shit. years. Yeah, did not necessarily, I mean, he was still... Can't Johnny really J- blame yeah. that manager. Right, right. No, totally. Uh, Johnny Jenkins didn't really have much success. Great guitarist, really cool voice. And that song, if you uh, you may have recognized, was sampled by Beck on Loser. And it all has also been sampled by the Beastie Boys and an Oasis, who I didn't know sampled. So, but <laughs> that's, that, that's like the, uh, the trilogy of 90s uh, MTV. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oasis Very good. and the Beastie Boys? Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, that song, uh, Dr. John's song, he does a really good version of it as well. I like this one more. There's also a version by Cher. Hold on. <laughs> that was She recorded at Muscle Shoals in the early to mid-70s, and that album is really good. The name of the album is... 5174 Jackson. Jackson yep, which is the Jackson. where Muscle Shoals studio was. Uh, so that's, that's my song. That album in general is really good. It's got a cover of a Bob Dylan song called Down Along the Cove. Also very good. Not quite as good as this. This was, this was the big one. Those are our songs. Was that, going back one second, was that yeah. a hit? I mean, no, no, I don't even, no, it was not a hit. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even sure if it was released as a single. I don't have information about That's that. Cool, but it's just crazy that so many bands would find that. So he's basically the man that launched Otis Redding and Beck. Well, uh, and it's good that you included uh, Capricorn Records in the Georgia episode. It's kind of bad to not mention them in the Georgia <laughs> music episode. So Big Covering later. all our bases. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, I guess it's time to answer some trivia. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and play all the tracks one more time, and then we're going to see if we can stop Joe. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two.
five. I saw you waiting by the roadside. You didn't know that I was watching. Now you know. Let it all go. Let them all go. Track six. Track one is The Cramps, and it's, the song is Chicken, something Chicken. Nope, just uh, Chicken. Just Chicken, okay. On uh, their album Date, David Elvis. Yes. Fantastic yes, which, record. Yeah. Uh, the second track is Fats Domino at Blueberry Hill. Okay. Right? That's right. The third song is Beck, who seems to be coming up a lot yeah. of these shows. Um, I don't remember the name of the song, though. Okay. The name of the song is Peaches and Cream. Okay. Okay, I was going to guess something with peaches in it anyway, but uh, then the fourth song, I don't know at all. My guess would be the Bo Brummels, but I don't know who that who that song is by or the name of the song. The song is Tobacco Road, and that is by a band called the Nashville Teens. Okay, I don't know. Oh, didn't know that at all. So. It's a really like, kind of rockabilly, garage-type okay. track. Okay, yeah, no, it sounded good. I said heard it. The fifth track is The Mountain Goats. For a Georgia episode, I don't know why you didn't do Golden Boy Peanut song, but I don't know the name of this one. I don't know the names of his... Most of the songs after about... Or after Tallahassee, mm-hmm. um, I focus less on... Um, I don't know if I would have known this song either. The name of the song is Cotton. Okay. So not inedible. Okay. Tracks, track six, uh, Booker T and the MGs with Green Onions? Nope. No. What is it? That, that would have been going I know. That's Damn. I know the song and, uh, I, and I didn't. I originally did not think that it was that. Edit that in. <laughs> uh, no, that is Watermelon Man by Monto saying oh, Mondo I, Santa Maria. Yeah, I never would have gotten that. I, I know I've heard the song a lot, but yeah, Herbie Hancock did a, a version. Yeah, that's the one. That's too. the one I have. Yeah. I think I really liked that song. I think I put it on because I really liked it. Okay. All right, track seven. Uh, Marsha G with Peanut Duck. Peanut Duck. There you go. Um, if you haven't heard that song go listen to it <laughs> it will be played here in in full at some point yeah <laughs> all right okay yeah. the the eighth song is it's jay farrar singing it is and i think it's sunvolt not wilco is it it's before that or the band before sunvolt wilco oh not wilco i'm sorry not wilco <laughs> i'm called two below that's what i meant to write down uh okay and I don't know the name of the song. Moonshiner. Moonshiner. I could okay. have put Cat Power's version or Bob Dylan's version, but yep. Okay. So we've got Chicken by the Cramps, Blueberry Hill by Fat Domino, Peaches and Cream by Beck. I also thought about putting Peaches and Cream by Prince, but I don't think I could have found a snippet that didn't have grunts. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, Tobacco Road by the Nashville Teens, Cotton by the Mountain Goats, Watermelon Man by Smallville Santa Maria, Peanut Duck by Marsha G. Moonshiner by Uncle Tupelo, 
these are things that um, are known for coming from Georgia, except for moonshine, which I would put in Kentucky more than Georgia. Yeah, you don't hunt around Georgia very much. Okay. I mean, it's popular everywhere, or was, especially in the South. Yeah. But, okay, so things that are produced in Georgia. Yeah, and, things that are just kind of known for. Okay. Yeah, that's, okay. that's it. Uh, blueberries is actually one of our biggest crops now. It doesn't seem like it would be, but, you know, traditionally you think cotton, yeah. tobacco. I didn't uh, know blueberries at all. Watermelon, but yeah, I was kind of hoping, the theme was really easy. I was kind of hoping, that because I thought some of the tracks are not, like, super known tracks, I thought maybe the theme would help. But you did, you know, see... C minus. <laughs> I got most of the band. You got most of the bands. <laughs> this has been our Georgia episode, our first theme episode. So we appreciate you listening. As always, go on out, support some uh, some artists or some record shops or uh, people who make music and make music available to us. That's real important to us. In fact, I think we're going to go out. We're going to go support a record store today, probably. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, we appreciate you listening and uh, greetings from Georgia. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.